welcome to Heart, the 87th Precinct podcast. This is the podcast for book five in the 87th Precinct series by Ed McBain, and it's Killer's Choice. Now, I've seen two different things. Some, say, some sources say this was published in 1957, some say 1958. And while that might not be much of a thing, it really annoys me to not know exactly. So mine and Steve-O's books will have 1958 in it at the front, I think. Mine also. Okay, so we're going to stick with 1958. So when I get to uh, the years bit in a moment, we'll uh, we'll use 58. So I do have, of course, Mr. Stephen Royston here. Good evening. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Why, hello there. Um, we've just watched the TV episode of uh, the 87th Precinct, which is based on this story, and we'll talk about that in the bonus episode. <laughs> we'll deal with the book first. I've got some, some orders of business, gentlemen. Okay. Some things we need to deal with. Fire away. Uh, in- including questions, mm. right. one of which was received literally two minutes ago, which is, so uh, well done, Mr. Stephen Morse, on your timing. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to start with the really important question of the day, and I, I do feel, Steve-O, this might be in your, um, no. in your wheelhouse somewhat, this. You maybe have to be the one answering this. This comes from highly respected academic Dr. Andrew Davies. Okay. And he wants to know, who would Ed McBain want to win the 2017 Snooker World Championship? <laughs> um, oh, God, let me have a think. Um, Marco Fu. Any reason for that? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, fair enough. Okay. Any other contenders that you think might interest him? No, I think, my, you know, he would admire his skill, but um, relative underachievement in his career. Oh, right, so you think, you know... Is He's probably pushing against the odds out as we speak. Oh yeah, oh well done, yeah, <laughs> you well done, Andy. You've jinxed him. Um, so there you go. That's the definitive answer of the question that people have been thinking about for years, even before 2017. People yeah. wanted to know what Ed McBain would have thought about the potential winner of the World Snooker Championship. Oh, we yeah, know. definitely rooting for the underdog. Yeah. Yes. A question from someone else, one of our Twitter followers. Uh, followers. <laughs> One of our... It's happening again. <laughs> it begins. One of our Twitter followers... Is it because I mentioned Marco Fu? <laughs> I don't know. One of our Twitter followers... <laughs> this comes from someone whose Twitter handle is at hypernumber79. Doesn't have a profile pic, so I don't know Ooh. who or what they are. And they use the name Stealth. Gosh. Which is very dramatic. Hello, Stealth. Or hyper number 79, the 79th of the hypers. <laughs> but it's a good question. Which 87th Precinct novel would make a good, big-budget, all-star 2017 film? Oh, it's, it's a good question, oh, that's a corker, but isn't it's a it? tricky question, I think. Mm, that might need some thought as opposed to an immediate... Uh... I, I think we should cogitate on that one a little bit. Mm, maybe. Um, because, you know, we spoke in the last episode about casting and things like mm. that and we said we were going to go away and try and think about people who'd be in the cast and I couldn't think of anyone <laughs> at all because I just don't really know actors that well and plus I have this you know that natural instinct of like oh you can't just cast Tom Hiddleston again type thing and I, no, I can't think of any other actors mm. so I didn't think of anyone but it's a good question and I think probably my initial instinct was some of the 70s and 80s ones mm. yeah. lend themselves more to that that sort of thing to be adapted Maybe in that some scale. Of the, uh, the, yeah, there's a few later deaf man, uh, man uh, novels, possibly. Yeah, it's difficult off the top of your head to think of. 
Yeah, because mm. I don't really know. Like, police procedurals don't really come along as big films, do they? Not Very often. Generally. I think we might have to, um, when we get to the book, we will be able to comment at the time and answer the question in, this is the one that could be the big yeah. budget. I think Certainly not this one, anyway. No. no Certainly I, not Killer's Choice, which is a bit more... Uh, uh, lower key in terms of mm. yeah, not much. It's not what you describe as a big budget, explosive in, in, no. in not one of the more sort of explosively dramatic. Yeah, I know what you mean. As you say, some of the eighties ones where you get the, the more sort of intricate, convoluted plots and sort of some uh, bigger action. I think the one with the uh, the rap band in it. That's quite. <laughs> that involves, that I don't invo- think I've read that one. That you involves know. a huge. Um, Music festival as well, and I think the deaf—that's a uh, deaf the, man one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the deaf man's ah. running around, threatening to do something or other. Uh, I definitely haven't yeah. read that's that. Mid eighties. I need to get onto that. Yeah. One, yeah, I can't remember which one that, that is. Graffiti or is oh. it called graffiti? Yes, I don't, it sounds like we head. should be an authority on the novels of the eighties and precincts, but off the top of my head. Well, this is yeah. this is a read through, and although we've all read most of them, except you who have read all of them. It's we haven't actually all necessarily mm. covered everything. Nor read them recently until yeah. we do the rereads. Yeah. So, yes. That's the nature of the beast. It is indeed. But, but yes, but I'm sure they're out there and we will flag them when we um, yeah. podcast them. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to gonna jump in and, and suggest that perhaps Ghosts or Bandersnatch might be... Uh... Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. It's that thing of... What about 80 million eyes, or is it 50 million 80 eyes? 80 million eyes. 80 million eyes. That's... I like that one, but that feel that always felt to me a bit more like a TV episode of something uh, like Columbo. But yeah. Vin possibly. Diesel is Steve Carella in <laughs> Ghosts. Oh, dear. <laughs> thing is, that probably end up those would be a better film than many of the <laughs> yeah, other books. Yeah, you know, quite you know, possibly. Is. Books, they don't. <laughs> they may not rank highly. We'll see. We'll see when we it get remains there. Remains to be seen. I think you've. you've so it's a bit of a non-answer to it's that an, question. It is a, yeah. But Mr. Will, or Mrs. or otherwise, we stealth, will answer it in one of the next we'll, forty we'll, episodes. We'll keep it in mind, certainly yeah, ongoing. We'll, we'll make it our part of our constant uh, thoughts our on mission. the matter. Yeah, our mission statement. Also, think about films. But yes, it's a good question, even if we've given an awful answer. <laughs> and the question we received. But seconds... If, oh, do you know what? You sent three now. Oh, my right. God. Right, well, let's just have them all. <laughs> right. Question one. All right, let's try and answer these quickly. Does it involve snooker? No. Um, <laughs> Pass. Uh, if you could be any crime writer of the last 100 years, who would you be? I'd be... Uh, I'd be Donald E. Westlake. Donald E. Westlake. Oh, good choice. Because then I would have the pleasure of writing the best uh, crime character of all time. Okay, very good. Morgan? Uh, I might be Rex Stout. Rex Stout. Quite a fan of Rex Stout. Yeah, such a good name. Well, exactly, yeah, a good name. Um, Just, I suspect he was probably a bit like Nero Wolf in real life, so uh, that's going to be quite a good life, just sort of tending your orchids and eating elaborate meals. Yeah, I think I'd go for uh, Dashiell Hammett. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, but only because I sort of imagine him to be somewhat like his characters in The Thin Man. I don't know, he probably isn't at all, but, you know, there's, you know, that ability to bring that sort of suave, comic mm. nature to it. Because I obviously am suave and comic. <laughs> Why are we not going for Evan Hunter? Well, I just think that would be a bit disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd all like to be Evan Hunter. And, um... He's an interesting uh, character, though, Dashiell Hammett, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Did, um... 
certainly a, a very moral um, character. It's, it's stood up for what he believed in. And he go to jail to because he refused to. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was. He, he uh, certainly, um, after his stint in the in the Pinkertons, uh, ended up being jailed for refusing to rat out some uh, uh, left wing conspirators of of some sort. Oh yeah, um, I don't really know that much detail. His background mm-hmm. just he was, he was a, a very interesting character. Interesting man, yeah, rather. definitely. Um, so yeah, cool choice. Yeah, it uh, could be Conan Doyle and believing fairies. Well, yeah. that's always oh, fun. We sort of yeah, stretching the hundred years definition by that, though, aren't we? Uh, when did no, he die? He would have died in. He was still writing them. Well, yeah, I mean, in I the was... early twenties, yeah, yeah. So right, oh, fair enough, yeah. I think I think the, yeah, the last one. So you'd, you'd either be something was re- relatively late. So you'd either be Donald E. Westlake or you'd be Arthur no, Conan Doyle believe, he believed in, fa- in fairies. No, and no, no <laughs> same one could be, but yeah, no, yeah, Donald E. Westlake. Yeah, great, great. A name. little bit cooler uh, he, by that time. Writing as Richard Stark. Yeah, of course. Uh, oh blimey! <laughs> Next um, question. Question two. Ah, Stephen Moore thinks he was too late for these questions, but I'm going to do it now. Uh, question two: Which is better, Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum or Emmerdale? <laughs> Emmerdale or Emmerdale Farm? Well, he says Emmerdale specifically. I think so if you asked Emmerdale Farm, we could have had... of Emmerdale Farm. <laughs> yeah. Um, Emmerdale Farm, we're going to... I've only ever seen the farm. film of Pit and the Pendulum, and it's very good. But I'd say Emmerdale. Well, I love the book, The Pit and the Pendulum, and I remember getting... When Penguin had, like, was it a 60-year, like, thing? And they did these things called Penguin 60s, the little mini volumes. They were, like, tiny little orange books. And I got The Pit and the Pendulum... Mm. And I sat down to read it, and I just could not stop. And I was horrified, and I was absolutely um, just... It was literally the first time, it's like, that was a page-turner. I could not stop. Horrified, needing to know, but not wanting to know. So it... um, But, you know, Emmerdale Farm had Fraser Hines in it, and he was in Doctor Who. I don't think this could ever be successfully (laughs) answered, but Morgan, if you have an opinion. I I think, as you say, the pit and the pendulum is a... particularly good uh, Poe story and it? it's got that kind of clammy sort of paranoid sort of creeping terror that he specialised in so well but although um, Emmerdale can also uh, cause that, those feelings <laughs> as well so uh, it's, it's a tough call Edgar Allan Poe's Emmerdale I think is probably the one I'd, I'd go for the, the biggest trouble I've got is there's no big uh, airline disaster in Pit and the Pendulum <laughs> which I no. always thought was a big failing yeah. whereas Emmerdale you know and Morgan out. went to school with someone who was in Emmerdale. Oh, well, that's didn't true, you? yeah, yes. So we'll leave that yeah, hanging. You didn't yeah. go to school with anybody in Pit and the Pendulum, so... <laughs> I think it's a draw. <laughs> there we go. If Ed McBain were a Britpop band, which one would he be? Ooh. Shut up, Stephen. <laughs> um... Not you, Stephen, other Stephen. <laughs> I'm not answering that one. I don't think that's a fair question, because, you know, he's we never going to define, be menswear. We need to define... Um... Define Britpop. Oh, Britpop or boy band? A Britpop band. Oh right, I thought you, I thought you said Britpop boy band, and I Brit was Britpop boy band. Yeah, that's just a tongue twister. Shed Seven. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Well, there we go. For the same reason as Marco Fu, I there isn't one. Excellent. And on that bombshell. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and uh, I'm not answering his last question, which insists on us dividing the main precinct characters into Democrat or Republican. Ooh, that, that, that's oh, that's actually God. an interesting <laughs> question. Well, yeah. Well. 
I think you project too much of your own beliefs onto them necessarily in some cases. Uh-huh. Andy Parker, who we've yet to come across, he'd be a, um, a Republican. Republican. Yeah. yeah. Roger uh, Haviland. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Uh, Ollie Weeks. Yeah. No doubt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all Republicans. So all the characters we've met so far, most of them, yeah. Most of them would be Democrats. Mm-hmm. Democratic... Um, but you never know. You never know. It's hard to tell, especially in the sort of that era in the fifties. Different, very different. Uh, well, different absolutely, world. yeah. yeah it was. Um, yeah, I think in those days, where the the Republican Party was a bit more centrist, I would mm. say. Well, they, I would say they both were. Yeah. But well, I'm not expert in America. So there we go. We had a lot more questions than expected. <laughs> Emmerdale Farm, though. Emmerdale <laughs> Farm. Uh, I also do want to mention a couple of things. I've had some uh, uh, Dr. Andy Davies who asked us our question about snooker. I would just like to say he has just co-edited a book that's been released. So I'm giving him a free plug for Ten Years on the Parish: The Autobiography and Letters of George Garrett, who was a merchant seaman in the 1930s and. If you've got £85 to spend on the hardback, you can buy it from University of Liverpool Press. Or £12 for the paperback. So, there you go, if you're interested in... £85? They're always like that. Uh, Anything published by a university publisher always has this ludicrous paperback, uh, hardback priced edition. No wonder they don't sell in their millions. No, well, that's it. They just sell them to libraries, don't they? But on the subject of academia again, I've also been in contact with Professor Erin E. MacDonald, who wrote... Ed McBain slash Evan Hunter, a literary companion, which is like the definitive academic Ooh. sort of reference text about Ed McBain, Crikey. of which there's not many. Well, admittedly, but this I've used this. I've referred to this a few times. Somebody in doing knows what they're talking about. Yes, so um, I have uh, been in contact, and hopefully we will be able to perhaps ask her some questions at some point. She's in London, Ontario. So, so probably questions that don't involve snooker <laughs> and Emmerdale Farm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you never know. (laughs) You never know. Yeah, indeed. Well, she's working on a book about um, Rebus and Tartan Noir at the Ah. moment. So, you know, this this is all British ephemera. uh, (laughs) So it might be about the high road and um, (laughs) And scotch eggs. Curling. Scotch, right. <laughs> it's gone well. I just doesn't expect that. Oh dear me. Right, let's just do a quick bit about 958, okay? So, uh, who do you reckon was the most famous person? I know the most famous person who was born on the day that the copyright date of this book was registered. 1958. 15th of January, specifically. Uh, Everyone knows him. Very famous, very famous. What what walk of life are we talking? Politician. Um, Tony Blair. I'll put you out of misery. It's Boris Tadic, the Serbian president between 2004 and 2012. Of course. It was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it is an interesting year for famous births, Mm. because if you think about 1958, it's that... Uh, sort of, we're getting to that point where a lot of today's sort of celebrities and stars mm. are, are being born. So you've got people like um, that's the year where Bruce Dickinson is born. Yeah. Tremendous. Ice T. Yes. Sharon Stone. Ellen DeGeneres. Peter Capaldi, who's brilliant in the new series of Doctor Who. Well, uh, class, baby, classic baby boom. Yeah. And wait for it, Bobby Davro. Oh, oh. crikey. So yeah, <laughs> if our Canadian, American, Korean, and 
so on. Um, listeners know who Sharon Stone is. They're definitely going to know who Bobby Davro is. Yeah, don't, don't bother looking him up. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's get on to the book. Because this is oh, like... book. Yeah, that's the one. That, you know, this that papery thing we've got near us. It's the start of that run of the 87 Precinct novels where they've all got killers something mm. in the title. There's like four in a row, I think, or they've got killer in, in the title somewhere. Yep. So he's obviously made a decision to, to go with that as a theme, move away from the something, the something, to this, which is interesting because it, I think it does feel a little bit like another, another gear mm. he's shifted into here again. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Well, the, the, the first four always... My mind like grouped together, and this—he's properly off and running with it now, and it just seems this would be interchangeable sequence-wise with any of the next ten, for example. Mm. I I would say. So yeah, Yeah. save perhaps for the for the fact that he introduces a character. Yeah, no, in terms of the style and whatnot, it's Mm. yeah, Uh, yeah, and I think so. This the uh, the nature of this book is that basically there's someone's found. Shot in a liquor store in a pool of alcohol. In a pool of alcohol, mm. so we trashed the store. It's and that's the nature of the crime that they've got to solve. But um, it's far from straightforward mm. in terms of the plot. And actually, I think after the the last book, this is another. He does get more twisty turny with this one, and more well, not twisty turny necessarily, but he he sets out to make the mystery more complex in the sense of the human element to it mm. try to try to understand the the psychological way of doing it rather than just the pure graft which is still going on through this because it's a procedural the graft is trying to unravel the psychology of the person yeah. that has been killed you're probably a lot more on the character the the the, the victim's character in this book than many of the others mm. i would say that perhaps don't dwell on it so much but um so yeah this is more about the, the a story about the victim as opposed to the story about the the um yeah the perpetrator the perpetrator mm. the perp yeah perp yes indeed <laughs> so yeah that's that's one of the really interesting features of the story but one of the other main ones and a, an interesting one from a publishing point of view because i think it was publisher led this decision is the introduction of a new character who is called Cotton Hawes mhm in which in this entire book everyone keeps going cotton what sort of a first name's that <laughs> and as i understand it basically ed mcbain's publisher said you can't have corella as your leading man because he's married hmm. he's not that's not sexy enough he's, he needs someone to be like the free sort of rugged charming one that people can sort of that women will fancy and Mayor or Myers uh, married also. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And Berkling's he was in, engaged, in shacked or, up more yeah. or less. In, yeah. You know, as soon as he sort of turned up in it. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's an an edition of this book where there's a, an introduction by Ed McBain. I think it's one of the '90s ones. He says one of the people I dealt with at Pocket Books, who were the publisher at the time, was a man I shall call Ralph, who was definitely not Herbert Alexander, the editor. Um, <laughs> Well, but he basically he relays a conversation saying that this that Ralph said Corella is not an attractive person. He isn't. He is a married man. Oh, I said. And then uh, it goes on to basically um, Ed McBain imagining treating him like uh, a victim in, in the French Revolution because just like 
what do you do with these people who come at you with all these ideas? Get rid of them. Um, <laughs> but so he creates, he creates cotton whores as a result of this input. But it's an interesting character. Indeed. I think he has an interesting introduction in this one <laughs> because nobody likes him and he doesn't make himself very likeable right from the off. No. So what do you think of whores in this book, cotton whores? Yeah, it's quite... Obviously, you know what character um, he becomes and you kind of start reading it with him being a bit um, unpopular in his decision-making and quite arrogant and a bit of know-it-all. But it's kind of completely resolved by the end, by <laughs> yeah. the end of the book. So they kind of... I always recalled his character was different, but I, I'd forgotten quite how quickly it all hmm. gets resolved and... Not wishing to be a spoiler, but uh, everything's okay, and he's a he's a good egg by oh, yeah. the, uh, the end of the book. Yeah, because he comes from the thirtieth precinct. He comes from a uh, a cushy precinct, very cushy. And if I find the section in my book, page thirty-two, is that it? So he, yeah, his his character is resolved fairly rapidly, I would say, but um, it's yeah. quite it's quite a good way of bringing in the fact that you know. Reiterating the fact that different parts of the city, completely different, yeah, life being a cop in different bits, yeah, because he sort of says we didn't have many homicides at the thirtieth, and the and he's talking to Corella at the time, and he's and he feels like Corella's getting at him about where he's coming from and being a bit soft, so he says, Corella says how many, and he says six, and he goes a week, no, a month. And it's, no, six homicides in four years. Mm-hmm. Now, just counting the homicides we've had in the books we've read, let alone the uh, imaginary gaps in between these, <laughs> it's uh, the 8th, 7th Precinct is clearly a lot more um, killy. <laughs> mm. Distinctly killy. Yeah. But a bit more, actually, there's a little sneaky bit about Corella's character in here as well. Cause it, and I think that's quite nice. He uses it as an opportunity to restate some bits about Corella when Corella's sort of defending himself to Cotton Hawes. Oh, yeah. Where he sort of goes, yeah. Stephen Louis Corella, detective second grade, 34 years old, been a cop since I was 21. I'm married to a girl named Teddy who's a deaf mute. We're very happy. I like my job. I've worked on 41 homicide cases and just about every other type of crime being committed in this city. I made two big mistakes in my lifetime. I jumped on a hand grenade in Italy and I got myself shot last Christmas. It's like so that bit about the hand grenade in Italy. He's like he's a he's a war hero, not yeah. just someone who who served. But you wouldn't expect anything less from Indeed. from Corella, really. Look, he survived this far. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, to be go, go around jumping on hand grenades. Yeah, yeah. So it's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, they show off how how sort of different cotton horses by when they go to question a suspect. And they both draw their guns and it makes it a really good sequence where they're getting ready and Corella draws his gun and then Cotton does the same, sort of sees him as the same, mm-hmm. and he clips off the safety and then Cotton does the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Corella's getting ready to sort of shout and kick the door in or, and then Cotton just sort of politely knocks and says, <laughs> open up, please. <laughs> and, of course, door gets blasted open and he gets uh, seven shades kicked out of him. Yep. And suddenly, yeah, he's... Uh, He's a bit more sympathetic to life in the 87th precinct after that. <laughs> Other things that happen in the in the 87 and in this book are to do with Roger Haviland. 
Poor old Roger Hammond. Roger. So, what do we think? Well, of that? He, well, he could have so easily gone in the first book, but um, yeah, he didn't last too much longer, did he? No. No, I think it's interesting. I think he was bored of the character, really. Uh, yeah, and you make him space as well for for Cotton Horse. Can of course, yeah. I mean, he's had a, a bit of fun uh, writing uh, Roger Haviland there, but he's a bit more one-dimensional yeah. than some of the kind of dodgy <laughs> cops who who turn up in the the precinct later on. It's a bit of a one-note character, so there probably wasn't that much you could do with him. He's yeah, I've mentioned him a few times. His natural successor, not immediately now, is Andy Parker, isn't yeah. he? But he's a little bit more complicated, isn't he? Because mm. he's 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 shares some of the traits of being a bit violent and a bit you know doesn't give um, um, you know suspects and whatnot much uh, leeway. But he's uh, yeah, he's perhaps got. He's, a he's, bit more, yeah. He's a bit more. Um, I don't know what I'm looking for. Well, I think bit. Andy Parker seems a bit more of his time, and I think Haviland seems a bit old hat, even at the start of this series, mm. and like he couldn't actually ever get out of the fifties, mm. because as as things are cleaned up a little bit in the police force, certainly as as it, they're portrayed in these books, they'd have had to have stories about Roger Haviland, mm. and I don't think they would have wanted to. Uh, Ed McBain would have wanted to do that. No. Yeah, Parker's a bit. Lazier, isn't he? I think a bit more. Yeah, tries to just do the minimum yeah. to kind of get the job done. And <laughs> but the the but he's the replacement dislikable one. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my voice went there. Um, but the the means of dispatch for um, Roger Haviland is having set him up over these past four books as someone who was never going to get caught out again hmm. because he was nice once and. He got beaten up and all this stuff. It's the one moment we've seen where he actually just goes to check that someone's okay, and that's the more, the point at which he gets pushed through a plate glass window. So it's not a nice way to go. No, sure isn't. No, definitely not. No, but it sets up this sort of intertwining sort of B plot throughout the book as well. Yeah, the plot of him going is the plot of um, Cotton. Yeah. yeah, earning his stripes. Definitely, yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's intertwined that way. But yeah, I remember when I first started reading them, I and I read that he I read that he died. It was like I didn't really go, "Oh, I'm missing <laughs> that character." Nah. No. I don't imagine many people did. No. Not even he wasn't even like Andy Parker and later sort of Ollie Weeks and some of those. Well, they, they're they're more enjoyable to, yeah, watch, to, to watch the to book, read. Yeah, the books were, were when Parker's in them are good reads because he's hmm. you know an idiot, but quite funny yeah. and just ridic- ridiculous things. Yeah, he's good, good uh, entertainment value, isn't yeah. he? Whereas yeah, Haviland, you, you couldn't really ever accuse him of being particularly entertaining in any way. No. Yeah, but I think, again, of things like Hill Street Blues, they do that, where they have bad cops. They are cops you also want to watch on screen. Mm, yeah. Because if they were all just nasty people, you wouldn't want to watch them. You'd, no. want, you'd want all the good guys to get them straight away, and so they wouldn't have had any shelf life. Um, sorry for the comparison to Hill Street Blues, Ed. <laughs> I've got another favourite bit of this. There's two sections in this, and that's Berkling and elevator operators. <laughs> yeah. There's just two points where he just has extended sequence where it's Kling sort of riffing with people in elevators. <laughs> oh, yes, I remember. Yeah, the guy's trapped in the building all day and he keeps asking him what it's like out there. <laughs> yeah. What's I, it? I like he uses the phrase, 
I'm a vertical mole. <laughs> Which is a great euphemism for an elevator operator. I wish there was more elevator operators now so we could just call them vertical moles. Um, that sounds quite derogatory, really. He'd rather be a horizontal mole, this person. <laughs> I'd like to drive trains instead. That's got, and then again on uh, page 61, Kling's clearly just bored of going up and down in elevators, so just spends the time taking the mickey out of the elevator operator by saying, well, why don't you become a cop? Because he's sort of like, well, you're cli- the elevator operator quips about him not being a model, so he starts to make, making fun of him about being a cop. So, yeah, those are the little sequences that just make up the day-to-day of it, don't they? Yeah. Mm. And sort of make the characters interesting and more, and uh, likeable. There, there are some well, the, the the there's some excellent characters in this though. The um, Mr. Phelps right at the beginning, who's all the way through the book. Yeah, he's a, uh, an excellent. Uh, um, we were talking about it before, like characters with different traits. The, you know, you you kind of pigeonhole them in one particular place. Mm. A real stingy, miserly person that you can't possibly imagine is going to be fairly central to the. Uh, yeah, to the, to the plot, and then is and uh, Annie Boone, who yeah takes you all over the place, really, and yeah. yeah. Uh, like you say about Phelps, he's interesting because it's the police are trying to be professional throughout, but he's so sort of more concerned about his stock and his, yeah. his seemingly rather than the girl in his shop who's dead. Mm. That he's uh, that you can sort of sense the cops straining against, like, why are you being like this? You know. And eventually, I think, you know, they, they actually do put in some barbed comments. It's certainly, yeah. I think some of the closing comments of the book um, sum him up quite nicely, don't they? Yeah. And then uh, Annie Boone's mother as well. She's somebody who yeah, is quite uh, duplicitous as well, depending on who her audience is mm. at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of very clever characters, really, and I think this more so than many of the other books in that respect. Because um, the, the plot's fair. Once you know, once you get to the end, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? It's not massively complicated, but it's just kind of getting there and all the the yeah. cul-de-sacs on the way that you the long and ex- winding road. Yeah, we it? we explore, but it, in terms of you know, it's the type of crime these days with forensic would would get sussed out <laughs> absolutely immediately. Yeah, and it's interesting because I I make a little list of of you know, who's in the books to when I'm doing my research on this. And in the first few, the, the sort of the amount of cops is a really long list and the secondary characters is quite short. Mm. Or it's, you know, it's sort of equal. This one, they've sort of boiled it down on the cop side of it because his squad's really sort of coming together in this, mm. is this sort of core group. But the list of civilians, as it were, which includes perpetrators, victims, uh, witnesses people in lifts as it were <laughs> is really long yeah and he's got to come up with names for most of them and he's got to feature he features families again on, in this one i mean it's, it's ludicrous there's a character the grocery store owner who he doesn't just call tony rigatoni it gives him a nickname so he's known to everyone as tony tony <laughs> <laughs> which is a nice touch again yeah. maybe that may be from his sort of italian family background something like that knowing those sort of nicknames the way mm. people talk maybe i don't know Book Mosley, that's a good name. Oh, yeah, Jenny Palenko. There's a scene where Cotton Hawes is trying to find someone on his own, 
and he goes to this apartment block and he goes and he in, ends up talking to this girl Jenny Polenko and she just gets wasted while she's talking oh, to him. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that scene, yeah. <laughs> and I think on the cover of the Perma Books, Pocket Books edition of this, the first edition of it, is an illustration which is basically Cotton Hawes at the door of her apartment... And it's and it's sort of got nothing to do with the story. Mm. And if you bought that book based on the on the front cover, you'd have a very strange time. But that's quite a fun sequence as well because she's clearly trying to get him into bed. Um, <laughs> he, he actually drinks in that short time, probably incapable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love the, the the closing exchange. Uh, Jenny Polenko did not take her eyes from him. What do you like, cop? Carpets, says Hawes politely. <laughs> yeah, dry with the dry wit of Connors. It's quite unusual for Hawes to actually not sleep with someone as well. He's a little beggar, isn't he? <laughs> well, I was going to say, he leaves that till the next book where... Um, yeah, he's, he's busy, isn't he? he yeah. He's we'll, very we'll, busy. We'll be discussing that soon, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Killers pay off, yeah. Very busy indeed. Yeah, so there is a, a certain amount of part one, part two to Cotton Hall's story with this book and the next, isn't it? There? Very much so, yeah. The, right. he, he, it's not just um, he, he's introduced in this and then he's in the background for a few. He, um, Ed McBain puts him at the forefront of this one and the next one as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So after you've read the two, he's well and truly, um, you know, one of the, the, the main cast. Yeah. Tell you another bit, bit I liked about this was after, after the bit where... Hawes almost gets him and Corella shot to death and they get beaten up and all that stuff. The next chapter, chapter nine, is just little cutaways to the houses of all the cops. All oh, right. So, yep. And it's all of them just sat around at dinner with their families or their mm. partners just going, can you believe it? This guy's just come in here and he's almost killed Steve. <laughs> and it's just these little sort of, you know, you can imagine it on, on screen, these cutaways to all these dining tables. It's Maya Maya with his loads of kids around him and it's... It's Bert and Claire, and it's Steve and Teddy as well. Yeah, Bert and Claire are necking, aren't they? They are, as, oh, as, as like, is their won't. As uh, young folk are often doing in the yeah. 50s. And there's even a sequence with um, Pete Burns, Lieutenant Pete Burns, at home with his family. Yeah. And yeah. His, his now no longer a junkie son. Well, yeah. Who looks at him with doe eyes. in <laughs> mash or something. Just <laughs> piles of mash. This is like some... Uh, I've just just read that in. He, he eats lo- he's, His lad eats loads of food or something. Uh, well, perhaps that's yeah. Gobble his food with total adolescent oblivion. <laughs> adolescent oblivion. Wow. Sounds like a television song. <laughs> <laughs> television song. Are we getting back to which uh, which nineties band would uh... gobble his food? Wolfing his food. Yeah, there we go. Uh, I didn't think I'd made that up. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think he's trying to make the difference between him being obsessed with food and obsessed with heroin. Getting to, yeah, getting high. Well, it's that addictive personality, isn't it? Clearly. Yeah, in the living room of Claire Townsend apartment, she and Detective Bert Kling were necking. Necking, eh? And then, of course, it cuts back to Cotton Hawes feeling very sorry for himself. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I like that they have a little girl in this who's the daughter of the victim. And of also one of the main suspects. She's not one of the main suspects. No, she's not <laughs> no. one of the main suspects. That would have been a good twist. I think there was a comma in there somewhere. <laughs> All right. um, but um, yeah, and they eventually get her to sign a false confession. Just <laughs> yeah. um, the electric chair in yeah. chapter. Ah, oh, she fell down those steps. I don't know what happened. 
or where this accent's from. Um, I listen to enough podcasts where Americans do English accents. So. Push down a slide aggressively. <laughs> yeah. But they've got this, and, and Bert Kling has this amazing little mm. sort of friendly relationship with it, and, and that helps to sort of get mm. the get them towards what they need to do. In fact, there's a nice joke bit about where she asks him about, are you a cop like on Dragnet? <laughs> and obviously, again, before he had a bee in his bonnet about Hill Street Blues, yeah, yeah. he had a bee in his bonnet about Dragnet. <laughs> and he, yeah, he's like Dragnet, but better, Kling said. Um, <laughs> but that's interesting, because again, that then trickles over into the next book for no reason other than some sort of strange continuity between these two stories. Mm. Tiny, tiny little bit in the next book that yeah. features that character as well. Ah, oh, yes, that's right. Because because he's in the next book, he's reason to well, yeah. The next book, he's got to, he's trying to find a photographer again. Yeah, yeah, he's, so he, yeah, he's in contact with Mister Boone, isn't he? Yeah, as that's... far as uh, the Isola is concerned, it seems to be full of photographers who live on the sixteenth floor of apartments. So cops have to keep going in elevators <laughs> up to them and quipping. Yeah, that, that, that yeah. That's, yeah, very true. Lots of photographers in this and the next. So. Yes, it must have been a very uh, photo-heavy time. Oh. But then, suppose I don't know. No, I was trying to think of a social reason for that, but uh, that's that's for. Yeah, they not just invented the camera in. <laughs> no, well, no, but there was probably fewer people who could take professional shots or yeah, like decent quality ones. Yeah. So. The cameras would have come massively down post-war, I suspect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, that's wars for you, isn't it? Mm. The mouse that roared. I think that film's got something to do with wars and economy. It has. Oh, tremendous, actually. I saw yeah, it again I was, recently. It was yeah, I haven't good. seen it for years. I can't remember. I mean, my what I find interesting about this is the eventual... And this is going to be a spoiler now, because I can't discuss it without saying it. The eventual way that the killing is done... Perhaps we shouldn't say who did it, maybe. But the eventual way the killing is done involves someone flying from Miami to ostensibly New York. Mm. You know, it's not New York, but it is New York. Uh, An East Coast city, somewhere in the approximate region of New York. Yeah, Yeah, or (laughs) a a city in a state that borders onto New York State, anyway. And back again in an evening, which presumably in 1958 you could just stroll onto a plane, not having to turn up two hours earlier, get scanned and pushed around by some grumpy... uh, yeah, well, I'm sure you would, yeah, domestic flights in those days. It would have all been like the uh, the glossy photographs of them drinking martinis and smoking and oh, yeah. doing whatever else you do on planes in 1958. And plus, of course, internal flights are a lot more run-of-the-mill in America than mm. they are in England, mm, certainly yes. in 1958. The distance, presumably, between Miami and New York slash Isola is probably longer than the size of the UK, I wouldn't doubt it, yeah. It it's a, considerably longer. But a modern flight from... I had to check this. A modern flight from mm. Miami to New York takes three hours. So the time frame does fit that someone could get there, oh, get right. somewhere. And it's not like it takes much time to shoot someone. Um, but, well, geez, yeah. They're at the beginning of the party. Six or seven or eight. They're again at the end. Yeah, because it's three or four. But it does rely so, yeah. on the fact that she's gone to... The character... Oh, damn. Uh, <laughs> ignore the pronoun. The, the, the killer has gone to a party that's going to last 
from like the afternoon of one day until all breakfast. night and <laughs> breakfast the next day, and that's standard operating policy for the hotel that she's staying in. Oh, I've done it Lucky again. That. <laughs> uh, he or she is staying yeah. in wearing the red dress that he or she is wearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a bit preposterous that because yeah, she was here at the the end, but uh, yeah, we didn't notice notice her for the the nine hours in the middle when she'd be going to the airport, checking in, sitting on the flight. Yeah, yeah. so perhaps it is a bit preposterous, but yeah, but like many of these things, it's. Makes it interesting. It does. Oh yeah, it at, does, at the very certainly. very least. Well, the classic discounting of somebody because they've got an alibi only to find their alibi is a load of bunkum. Bunkum indeed. Yeah. I've just noticed. I mean, we talked about 1958, and just to really annoy me, he clearly wrote it in 1957. Mm. Um, on page 150 of our edition, there's a, a photostat type reproduction of uh, a driver's license type thing. Or automobile registration application, and it's dated 1957. <laughs> um, but I think actually, in terms of the story time, it is 1957 still. I'm not sure. I don't know. It's probably something in the past. It'll annoy me if I get to, if I get a few books in and suddenly I can't trace the actual story timeline of this anymore. The, uh, the academic might uh, correct us. Yeah, well, she may. Uh, it's certainly it's in June of of the year that these stories are taking place in anyway. That's an interesting one. I think we'll uh, we need to now ponder on closing comments. Really, anything to add, particularly anyone? <laughs> Go on. Just, it seems like you had something there, Morgan. I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a funny one uh, for me. This this, this was the second eighty-seventh uh, um, precinct book that I ever read. Mm. Um, at the time, I found it a bit underwhelming, just because I, I read it fairly straight after reading Ice. Um, oh, oh, that's very and, different then, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I must admit, on revisiting it, I still... I, I find more to appreciate in it, but it's still not one of my favourites. I, I find that a, a lot of the development is is really good and really interesting, and then it doesn't really resolve everything to my satisfaction. I find, find sort of the, the conclusion to be somewhat underwhelming. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, it's like there's a lot of mystery created around Danny Boone. I don't necessarily feel like all of it is. Yeah, I think I think you're right. A lot of what is raised is totally unresolved by the end of the book, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, you don't. You and never really like, know why well, she is these different people to yeah, different people. I really want to know. That was kind of the main thing that keeps keeps me turning the pages. Like this is a, this is so fascinating. Why why is she all these different Oh oh it's just finished now. Yeah. <laughs> the end. Yeah, especially like the you know, people thinking she's intelligent and other people thinking she's not and, She's definitely either intelligent or slow. Uh, or um, is she an alcoholic or not? Yeah, a prim, um, prim and proper party girl. Um Yeah, so a lot of it, yeah, you're right, it's totally left unresolved, but I suspect intentionally, um, uh, you know, I don't think he's somebody who does things unintentionally. Oh, I'm I'm sure, I just, yeah, no, I think think, think you're right, that that said, I, yeah, I I do, when I reread it this time, I did remember enjoying it the first time round, yeah, and it's, um, yeah, it's a lot more character-based than mm. some of them are, I would say. Um, mm. 
Um, yeah, there, there is a lot of good stuff in there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I, I, I didn't enjoy it. And, and I did actually enjoy it more on a second reading. But um, just a, a couple of things about it that I find a little um, unsatisfying. Mm. OK, so shall we uh, review the scores for the previous oh, ones yes, in the series let's... briefly? So Cop Hater got 86. The Mugger got 76. The Pusher got 75. And the Con Man got 83. Please shields out of 100. Please shields. So, gentlemen, start your um, brains working out what you're going to award this. Mm. And I'll fire up Kenneth. And I will start. I'm going to give it... Ooh, where do I go? Where do I go with this? <laughs> I like the introduction of a new character, but that always feels a little unsettling. But I like the character, and I like the way it's played, and I like the the nature of integration. It's it's it seems realistic. People are a bit unsure of him, and then things happen, and it you know becomes part and parcel of it. I think it's different to the others in an interesting way. So I think I'm gonna go for seventy eight. Please shields, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna hand over to Stephen. Um, yeah, I think. 73. Ooh, 73. Okay, so that's that's uh, probably think, one of yeah, the... Yeah, just, just marginally better than 7 out of 10, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's probably uh, quite a lot. It's of got a lot of redeeming features, that. but yeah, it's uh, it's perhaps not as exciting as hmm. some of the others, or as, yeah, aside from Cotton Halls and Steve Carella, the detectives don't really get up to huge some of them compared to the other books yeah yeah I think so. they just sort of almost have cameos in a way don't yeah. they Morgan yeah well as I say I mean, there's some some uh, good stuff in there like the introduction of Cotton Hawes some uh, uh, good dialogue some interesting character stuff but just feel a bit underwhelmed underwhelmed by the uh, the resolution of the plot as a whole so I'm actually going to give my lowest score yet 62 police shields. 62, wow. Crikey. Well, six, yeah, six out of ten, yeah. It's, it, you know, it's respectable. Yeah, absolutely. It's... All the um, gaily coloured lights on the side of Kenneth are flashing. <laughs> There's steam coming out of its base, and that big handle started wobbling unusually. And he returns the figure of 71. Mm. Yes, interesting. I think we're starting to see the beginning of... A bit more variation in the scores, a little bit, as things go on through the series. But a lot of the early books, those four, they all had very similar scores to each other. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I think that reflects the fact that they, they f- even though they're about completely different things, they're fairly similar in content, s- scope and size, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. Generally speaking. And so, yeah, you do notice as the, as the canon goes on, you've got, yeah... Plots that are a little bit more focused, and this one, whereas others are a bit more grander in scale. And yeah, yeah. and again, I don't think that uh, I think I've mentioned this before. I don't think necessarily that a score in the seven, low seventies is a bad thing. Necessarily. Not at all. No, um, it's not. Yeah, until we actually get to some some marker of the low end of the series, <laughs> which will be interesting to see. But I think they're still a bit of a way off, certainly in my mind, anyway. Yeah. So, that was Killer's Choice. We'll do a little bit of a bonus episode in a minute. And the next one we'll be looking at is what we sort of described as part two of the Cotton Whores introduction series, which is Killer's Payoff, which is a very interesting story. And so, from now, from here, till then, etc., 
Good night. Goodbye. Fare thee well. Bye.